we aren't called to win the wars. We, we aren't called to protect God or to protect Christianity. We are simply called to be faithful. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Kristen Cobus DeMay is an historian and professor at Calvin University. She's the author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Her indictment is hard to read. It was for me anyway. And while I'm not ready to embrace 100% of Kristen DeMay's conclusions, Jesus and John Wayne is an impressive and important book. I commend it to you. Kristen Cobus DeMay, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so glad we we get to talk. Um, I want to start here with our with our conversation, uh, and this the idea of of storytelling as a way, or, or maybe the way that we re, that we re, reframe our own understanding or help other people reframe their understanding of the world they live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think when I talk to writers, we talk about this idea that that you know, one of the great privileges of the writers to be able to see, I know you thought you were living in this story, yeah. but and, as it turns out, you're living in this other story and, and, and live, live into this story instead. Um, and yet if storytelling is the, a great force for truth telling, it can also be a great force for falsehood. So anyway, the floor is now, now open to discuss that idea. Kristen. Oh, yes. Yes. I love that framing. And honestly, when I, set out to write Jesus and John Wayne, I was just writing a history. I was, I was writing a history that I thought needed to be told. Since the book has come out, I've seen it, uh, I've seen it be received in a way that maps onto exactly what you're saying. It, uh, it is being received in a deeply personal way by people mm-hmm. who have lived this, lived this life. I've gotten hundreds of letters from people who say some form of this is the story of my life. So exactly uh-huh. those words. Yeah. And um, but I never knew it was. And so yeah. uh, one one man said, uh, I bumped a- up against all of these um, trees, but I never saw the forest before. Oh. And so I think the book is is being seen as being received as a new story, a story that suddenly makes sense of individual experiences in a way um, that is very different from what they um, what they thought their story was. Yeah. Um, but they had already cu- bumped up against the limits of their story as, uh-huh. as they had yeah. received it. Right, things weren't making sense. This, uh, you know, their experiences. Uh, some of them ha- have um, really traumatic experiences in terms of uh, their faith, their communities, um, their you know understanding of politics. And so this mm-hmm. this is a book that helps them to understand their stories in a way that actually gives them a sense of peace. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, actually, before we started recording, I said something similar to you that that I, I some of the I thought of my my life in in sort of a lot of the names that you mentioned and, and book titles and that sort of thing were, were things that I knew, but I didn't quite understand how it all fit into a big picture. And, you know, something you were just saying reminded me of a, um, this, this is in, I am paraphrasing James K. Smith, who is paraphrasing somebody who now I can't remember, uh, Leslie, oh shoot, I can't, I can't put Newbigin? my, Newbigin? No. No. Okay. It's a, it's a woman, it's a woman named Leslie, Anyway, her 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 book is about twelve um, step recovery and her I think her own recovery, and and she talks about this idea 
the the twelve step story. When people tell their story in these twelve step programs, it's the same story over and over again. And as writers, we're always wanting to be original. But she was saying the comfort of that the comfort of that is knowing that I'm part of a story that I didn't write. Yes. And and that to fit into to find my place in this other story, um, it's a comfort to us to to know that that yeah. there's you know that, that there's a the story of mine is a familiar story and not as unique as I thought it was. Absolutely. Because otherwise I think there's a tendency to think, you know, what did I do wrong? <laughs> right. What, mm-hmm. what, you know, there's this, a source of, you know, tension now maybe between, you know, myself and my family or my church community, or, you know, I don't fit with, you know, I consider myself a Christian, but I don't fit with what I'm seeing. Or, you know, there, there are many uh, who have, who have suffered, uh, you know, from abuse in religious mm-hmm. communities. And I think their responses are, are the most poignant of, you know, just, you know, what did I do? And, and why did my community not support me? And 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 there's a tendency to yeah think it's just your story and that you did something wrong. And when you realize that it is part of this bigger story, you are not alone. It doesn't make it any better. Um, you know what happened, but it I think it, it does give this sense of closure actually to see right. that you're part of something bigger and the people around you we're part of something bigger. And so it's not just a personal thing. And, um, and, and then that, that enables you to process and, and I think, and, and, and move, move on. Yeah. Well, we should probably back up. We launched right into some things and uh, we, you know, some, some of the listeners of this podcast might not, may not even know what, what story we're talking about. Um, so uh, when, when people ask you to give a quick summary of Jesus and John Wayne, Sorry, because uh, I know you spent a lot of time and, and wrote a lot of pages. Uh, but what's the what's the short story of of what this book is about? Sure, it's I've I always uh, considered it my book on white evangelical masculinity and militarism, and it's a history book. So it's tracing this strand uh, throughout American history, throughout conservative white evangelicalism, really through the 20th century, uh, but especially through the last uh, uh, 75 years up to the mm-hmm. present moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Christians are in principle, at least people of the book. Um, and, and yet in your, in your book, you tell the story of how, you know, white evangelicals who are some of the most vocal, you know, people about the authority of scripture have have somehow embraced stories of worldly power. And as you said, militarism that, that are clearly at odds I say maybe, okay, maybe I shouldn't say clearly at odds because it's not perhaps clear to everybody with the teachings of Jesus, with with the book, you know, I mean, uh, on the question of immigration, I I know at one point in your book, you you talk about the, on the one hand, the Bible has so much to say, the Old Testament prophets has so much, much to say about how we treat immigrants and the stranger. And, and yet, you know, there's a there's another story that that overwhelms that story for yeah. you know conservative even and again it's, it's so hard so hard to talk about these things because I know there are plenty of people who you know uh, there's a variety of of beliefs yeah. within the evangelical movement so I, I don't want to paint with too broad a too broad a brush but anyway. 
Yeah. So when I first started looking into the history of evangelical masculinity and militarism, this was more than 15 years ago, actually. So mm-hmm. I've been kind of living with this project for a long time. I, I didn't quite know that it would it would turn into the book that it turned out uh, to be that that really came together in the fall of 2016. But uh, when I first started looking at, at um, very popular books on uh, evangelical masculinity, books like John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, mm-hmm. right, published in 2001, went on to sell more than 4 million copies. And this book was everywhere in evangelical circles sure. for, for a decade, really, and, and it, it still lives today. Um, what struck me was uh, just how few um, Bible verses there were uh, in terms of constructing a, a vision of Christian manhood. Uh, and those that, that were there were, were you know, ripped out of context. And instead, I saw authors like Eldridge and those inspired by him really looking to Hollywood heroes uh, to um, kind of mythical warriors, to random soldiers as their models of Christian manhood. And um, that's where the title of the book comes from, mm-hmm. Jesus and John Wayne. I could also have called it Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, but that didn't mm-hmm. quite roll off the tongue in the same way. <laughs> um, and so what I saw happening then is uh, evangelicals like looking outside of scriptures. You know, these are quote unquote Bible-believing evangelicals, right? Who are mm-hmm. actually drawing inspiration on what it means to be a Christian Christian man from these secular models, um, from kind of militant, militaristic secular models. And then they bring that back into their faith, and that actually ends up transforming their faith, or Mm -hmm. as I put it, corrupting their faith. So that Christianity itself becomes uh, a militant faith, so that the Jesus of the Gospels gets transformed into a kind of warrior Christ with tattoos down his leg, you know, uh, uh, wielding a bloody sword and charging into battle. And so it really does transform the essence of Christianity itself. Um, now, the, but the the image of the warrior Christ is not completely fictional, right? Right, right. Uh, so you can find, you know, you could talk about the armor of Christ. Uh, you could put on the armor of Christ. You can find uh, the book of Revelation is actually a very uh, a favorite uh, uh, um book for uh, those who are who are building up this this very you know, kind of militant conception of Christianity. Um, but the Bible is a complicated book, right? And, uh, you know, we have theologians, we have pastors to help us understand how to read. We have tradition, we have confessions uh, mm-hmm. in the history of Christianity to help us understand how to interpret the scriptures. And now evangelicalism tends to um, set aside traditions um, of a certain sort, um, set aside confessions, and, and really champion the plain reading of the of the Bible. Like, anybody can open the Bible and figure out what it's talking about. But in fact, they have their own cultural lenses that they apply. Yeah. And so, what we see are, you know, certain passages are, are really elevated, and other passages are dismissed. And so, you know, again, the Jesus of the Gospels, you've got the Beatitudes. Uh, you've got, you know, instructions to love your neighbor as yourself, to turn the other cheek, to love your enemies. You have the, the fruit of the Spirit. You have mm-hmm. right, all of these teachings that most would argue are pretty close to the core of Christianity and should frame the way we interpret the rest of the scriptures. You've got most of those really being set aside or defined as uh, effeminate or feminine virtues and that what it means to be a uh, uh, um, a man, a Christian man, is to be following a warrior Christ and all that that entails. And so it does really, um, you know, it's not an abandonment of the scriptures, but it's a very particular way of reading the scriptures according to this uh, this this lens of cultural and political values. 
Mm-hmm. For some reason, the other day, and this was before, even before I started reading your book, I was thinking about the the song "Give Me That Old Time Religion." Yes, you know? and which um, I was curious to know when it was written. Apparently, it was about eighteen seventy, yeah. and which was actually a little older than I thought it was going to turn uh-huh. out. To be. Mm-hmm. And uh, but as you said before, um, in the Christian tradition, we have a tradition, right? We we have you know a long you know centuries of of people helping us to to know how to make sense of, as you said, a, a complex book, and and that the 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 spirit of that song, that song, give me that old time religion, is is it's not an old time religion we're talking about. It's a relatively recent, exactly, exactly. Although you know anything that has been around one year longer than I've been around feels old, right? <laughs> Right. Well, well, it feels old because evangelicals have been saying it's old. Right? Evangelicals embraced that brand of old time religion. Evangelicals in the early 20th century really embraced, um, and, and when in fact they were innovators. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, when you have in the early 20th century, you have you know the the fundamentalist modernist divide. Modernists were really upfront that hey, we are adapting the faith to modern times, and you know mm-hmm. very very open about, about that. Fundamentalists were also adapting the faith to modern times. So Right. They were um, they were moving away from denominational structures. They were moving away from traditional church authorities, and uh, they were embracing celebrity. They were embracing kind of uh, uh, you know consumer culture as a way to evangelize. And a lot of this was really quite innovative, but they branded this as traditional. They branded this as old-time religion. And here I'm really borrowing from the work of another historian, uh, Tim Glegg, uh, who wrote on the Moody Bible Institute and, and has really pioneered this work, which I think is, is really compelling. The, uh, the, the, the fact that evangelicals kind of um, embrace um, or, or package their own innovative faith as old-time religion and did so very effectively and kind of won that PR contest. Yeah. Interesting. You're, you're using the language of branding of you're using consumer language. Um, it, you know, since my interest and my focus is writing that sort of thing, I mean, I know yours is too, but, but, but I'm talking about teaching writing. Uh Um, I would have talked about competing stories and which is another way of saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, but man, that, that, um, that language of branding is, uh, Something about that hurts my feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, it is a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves, but it's not just a story we're telling ourselves. It's also the story that we're insisting that others accept, right? It's this, it's, yeah. it's our outward facing story. And when we, you know, the, or, or when, when we look at evangelicals branding themselves as old time religion, branding themselves as traditional Christianity, there's uh, an implicit uh, kind of us versus them claim that mm-hmm. other Christians are not the old time religion, that other Christians Christians are, uh, you know, uh, diverging from traditional Christianity. So there are some truth uh, claims that are part of that as well. And I think those truth claims are are pretty central to evangelical identity. Now, all of us like to think that our stories are the true stories. Evangelicals are not unique in that. Um, But I think they have perhaps leaned into that a little bit more um, and and, and placed that at the core of their identity. And and it, it has been an oppositional identity throughout the 20th century up to the present, you know. Uh, we are against others. We have this truth that others do not have. And that's why it's so important that we protect our story, that we protect our, our witness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm going to resist the temptation to ask a different question that would send us off on a, on a <laughs> rabbit trail. Um, let's talk about fear because fear is such an important part of, I mean, fear is such an incredibly powerful motivator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a kind of story that gins up fear yeah. as a way of consolidating power yes. and, and manipulating people and that kind of stuff. And hopefully there's, I mean, I'd say hopefully there is a, there is a story. There are stories that, that release us from fear. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the, uh, you know, there's so many ironies in the stories that you're telling here. Uh, and I will, I will identify two and you can talk about whatever <laughs> other ones you, you I mean, one is that this, this call to manly courage, for instance, is the way, you know, it, it is, I'm going to stir up enough fear in you that you're going to have to go out and, and show some manly courage. Yes. Yes. Um, that's one, that's one irony that we can talk about. And, and then the, the other is the gospel is a promise of a release from fear. Yes. You know, the, the, the gospel says, Hey, this, this story that this, this fearful, all this fear you're living in, the truth is it, the, the reality as it turns out is better than this, this fearful world where you find yourself. Yes. And yet that's not the, that's not how these stories that we're talking about have, have been working for the last, as you said, 75 years or so. Yeah. So I almost opened the book with a quote from Marilyn Robinson, that fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Uh, mm. uh, and <laughs> really debated. I, I ended up not because uh, this is, uh, in, it, that's a theological claim, right? And I couldn't mm-hmm. really, as a historian, validate mm-hmm. that. You know, unfortunately, the story I'm telling it is very much uh, a Christian habit of mind. If we're if we're looking at um, this particular history, so um, yeah, the question of fear initially when I when I approached this, I was kind of working with the the popular understanding that to understand evangelical politics, to understand sometimes evangelical extremism, you just really have to understand that they they are very afraid. So they're afraid of demographic changes, you know, the end of white Christian America. They are afraid of being marginalized. They are afraid of, um, you know, in the past, they're afraid of communism, and then they're afraid of secular humanism, and they're afraid of liberalism, and they're afraid of their way of life, and, and all of these things. And so, you know, of course, then they're going to respond with militancy. They're going to they're going to respond with extreme actions from time to time because they are so afraid. Uh, and that was very much the the kind of um, uh, rhetoric around uh, the evangelical vote for Trump in 2016. They were very afraid. Um, and so can you really blame them? Mm-hmm. Push them into the arms of a man like Donald Trump. And then when I started looking at the history, I ended up needing to flip that script, actually. I, uh, rather than taking the fear for granted, and then seeing militancy as a response to that fear. In one case after another, in local churches, in Jerry Falwell Seniors, Thomas Hill uh, Baptist Church, or Thomas Road Baptist Church, in um, uh, Mark Driscoll's uh, Mars Hill Church, in, uh, um, in these crazy stories about uh, fake ex-Muslim terrorists that you know, took the, the speaking circuit by storm in the post-9-11 years, over and over again, I saw that uh, actually the fear was being manufactured. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, by evangelical leaders. So it was being stoked in the hearts of their followers. And then that fear was real. Like followers, like they were legit afraid of communists and they were legit afraid of um, radical Islam. And um, and, and then they were acting accordingly. And within this, this kind of militant framework, the way when you are afraid, you seek protection. And those who were stoking their fears were promising protection. Uh-huh. I will protect you, right? This the strong man. I will protect you. You stay within the fold of our church. Don't go to that church down the road. Uh, you know, and 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 this is a time of war, right? A lot of this military rhetoric. And within war, absolute loyalty is demanded. It is required, right? You follow your orders, you obey your leaders. And I came to see how uh, it wasn't that fear often stoked. Uh, militancy uh, or led to militancy, although that that was part of what was happening, but kind of chicken and egg. But really, it was often the militancy that first required fear, that required the continual stoking of fear in order to sustain itself. And once I saw that in 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 the history, things just clicked for me, and and I saw that that was a pattern that is repeated over and over again. Mm-hmm. So is there a, uh, since fear is such an, an important, I mean, it's such a powerful fo- force, mm-hmm. um, you're a writer, an historian, um, does, are there, what are your, what are your thoughts on how we tell, tell other kinds of stories that release people from fear? Yeah, yeah I think we need to, um, we need to look look those fears in the eye and 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 really deconstruct them. You know, what is the worst thing that could happen? Mm. What is? Oh, okay, let's take fears around religious liberty, um, right? Uh, that mm. fears that with a, um, uh, a increasingly pluralistic uh, society, that Christians uh, might not be able to live their faith out in all areas of life exactly as they see fit um, through their own institutions and through um, laws and so on. Um, and I work at a Christian university, uh, you know, I, I work at a Christian institution that would probably see some changes if um, there was an erosion in religious liberty and so on. Um, but let's just follow that road, you know, where it takes us. What is the worst thing that can happen? What really happens to our faith? What happens to our life? What happens to our witness? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we going to be okay? Uh, my favorite uh, quote in the book actually is towards the end of the book, and it's a quote from Rachel Den Hollander. Uh, and it's so in a slightly different context, a relevant context. Rachel Den Hollander was uh, the first witness in the Larry Nassar case um, on sexual abuse um, among MSU gym- gymnasts. And really kind of broke that case open. And then she became an advocate also for um, survivors in um, cases of abuse in evangelical circles and in religious Uh circles. Um, But she has this powerful quote that is responding to the tendency of Christians in particular to cover up abuse. And she says, um, you know, to protect the witness of the church. She says, God does not need your protection. God only asks for your obedience, right? And so it's this question ultimately of power, really. You know, um, we aren't called to win the wars. We aren't called to win the culture wars. We, We aren't called to protect God or to protect Christianity. We are simply called to be faithful. And what does that look like? She says it's it's pursuing justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, it, it's that simple. It takes courage um, and uh, it, it's not grasping at power. And I think that's actually her quote there is the moral center of, of the entire book for me. Mm. Yeah, that's, 
That is so good. And one thing I want to talk about, Kristen, while I have you, is the idea of confirmation bias, which we tend to think the people who disagree with us sure do have bad confirmation bias. Um, <laughs> of course and, we do. Yeah. And, and so you are, this is an academic, or, you know, this is an academic book that has a thesis. Mm-hmm. And I have, you know, I was an academic. I wrote a dissertation, had a mm-hmm. thesis. And believe it or not, everything in the world, as it turns out, <laughs> confirmed my thesis. Right. And and so, you know, your uh, as I was reading through your book, it was so comprehensive. It was was like this unifying theory. Yeah. So unifying that I was felt a little suspicious. Right. Uh That turns out John Wayne is everywhere. Everybody (laughs) knows John Wayne. And and so can we talk about that a little bit? I mean, as a as a writer and a thinker um, and when you when you get a, a theory you're excited about. Mm-hmm. How do you trust that you're not just seeing everything as a confirmation of your theory? What? This is such a gentle framing of a very pointed question. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. Right. I um, So first, uh, what I'd say is, yes, this is a thesis-driven book. And uh, to clarify, this is not a history of evangelicalism. It's not a history of American evangelicalism. It's not a history of white evangelicalism, right? This is a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And that is the thread that I am, I am pulling through this, uh, this 75-year history. Now, um, <laughs> If it's a little unclear, let me say that. So this is also, it's an academic book, tons of footnotes, but it's also written for general audiences. It's with a trade publisher. And one of their rules right up front was uh, uh, when it came to the title, I was not allowed to use the word masculinity or militarism in the title, Uh, right? Too big too big. Nobody's going to pick that book off the shelf. So I was like, okay, you know, I went with a trade publisher for a reason. We'll work with it. But it was a challenge. It was a challenge for me and my editor. So we had to really come down to, okay, what is this book essentially about? Uh, But, but yes, it's a book about white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And um, so confirmation bias. Um, So I was, I was tracing that pattern throughout. Um, That said, when I was pitching the book, um, one of the editors that ended up in, in front of, he, he, he pushed back against that. And he said, no, this is more than that, Kristen. This is, a book of, this is a new history of evangelicalism. And I said, no, 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 that's not what I'm after here. It's, it's, it's a much narrower topic. Uh, and then I went with, signed with another publisher, worked with another editor about three months into the writing process. I was sitting here in my office, uh, working through a tangled chapter and, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, I think this is a new history of evangelicalism <laughs> and his words came back to me. Um, but, but it's not right. It is, it's a strand that I'm arguing is it becomes a dominant strand within white evangelicalism It is not the only thing, but it is something that even the other strands are going to be bumping up against. They're going to be encountering this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very attentive to questions of affinities, of, um, of power dynamics, of how this plays out, even for those who resist it. Even for those who offer alternative paths, who actually controls the mainstream? One of the big questions running through the book is what is mainstream evangelicalism and what is marginal? What what is on the fringe? And that's something that I try to tease out. And that's something that really, I think, shifts over time. A couple of other things on confirmation bias. Uh, so I had a, a team of student researchers working with me who were fabulous. Three researchers stayed with me for two to three years on this project. And I, mean, I regularly gave them the advice. Uh, you know, they, they saw the picture, the big themes. They, they knew what I was looking for. And I told them over and over again, you know, the best thing you can do for me is bring me evidence that 
counters my thesis. Mm -hmm. Like, don't just go out there and look for the stuff. It was really easy to find stuff that confirms my thesis. I'm most interested. Show me the stuff that disrupts it. Right. And I just Mm -hmm. had to keep, so looking for that. Um, I will also say that, um, you know, I had I had some skeptical readers, a couple uh, historians who I, I think you know, pre um, pre publication, uh-huh. um, not a fan of this book um, or the thesis, and uh, one in particular, um, and asked to read it, uh, a senior scholar, and uh, so I, I I had him read it, and uh, he. Uh, you know, I think would agree on some or disagree on on some points or or places of emphasis more. Uh, but by the time he reached the end, uh, I think he he'd converted. And and what was really interesting to me is to see in 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 subsequent weeks he would send me emails of things he saw, of um, of evidence, of images, of you know, uh, top ten lists of this evangelical pastor, um, like. Uh, eight of which were on military leadership, right? Kind of things. Oh. And once you have eyes to see this, you are going to see it a lot of places, right? It does actually describe a lot of what we're seeing. And I think that's been a really common response to this book is once you have this 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 thesis, you're going to see how it does make sense of an awful lot of things. But always look for who, who does this not apply to, right? Who does this not, for, for whom is this not the story of their life? You know, for mm-hmm. which evangelicals? And then why? And those are very fair questions to ask. So, okay, I'm going to push one one more time on this. The, mm-hmm. the, the phrase, once you have eyes to see it, you see it everywhere. Yeah. Isn't that the definition of confirmation bias? <laughs> well, uh, yes, it's always, but uh, I, I suppose. I, okay. Let me, let me, let me step that back a little bit. You're going to see it many places, right? It's going to, you realize that this, this was just part of the air that you were breathing mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and it didn't really strike you as distinctive. It didn't strike you as particularly relevant. It was just the way things were. Uh, so, you know, ideas of, of, um, the Christian nationalism of linking the Christian gospel to American exceptionalism, which is also linked to um, uh, uh, this um, militarism. To the when when if you go back in Christian history, like you can see, um, you can find instances of of Christian you know militarism. You can also find a pretty strong tradition of Christian pacifism. So mm-hmm. it just makes us ask, you know, why this choice? Now, same thing with regard to masculinity and this kind of rugged warrior masculinity, which really makes no sense if you read the New Testament. It makes very little sense, I should say. Um, you know, this denigration of of um, Mr. Rogers' masculinity in evangelical circles. Uh, these are the kinds of things that might not grab your attention, but when they do, they do precisely because now you realize this this doesn't really make sense, right? This is something that needs to be explained. This is something yeah. that needs to be problematized. And this isn't the direct outgrowth of, you know, reading the scriptures. It's not. It's something else. And all of these things fit together over here. And we really have been embracing them as this is just simply how you be a Christian in this yeah. in this day and age. And it's, it's actually not. It's a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, to be fair, you know, as I was picking on the statement, once you see it, once you have the eyes to see it, you yeah. see it everywhere. That's, you know, that's true for confirmation bias. It's true for, for um, conspiracy theory, but it's also true for the truth. And that's what's so 
difficult about talking about so many of these. And that's yeah. one of many things that are difficult about talking about, about yeah. these things is that, that truth and crazy conspiracy theory, there's some overlap yeah. <laughs> in, in the way it feels, right? Yeah, yeah. When, when you are feeling it or, or sensing it. Um, well, one thing you say, I, I think this is in your, in your um, conclusion or epilogue or whatever it's called, is that what has been done can be undone. Yeah. And, and that, that this, the, the kind of, um, um, you know, the, the state of our, of our culture is not inevitable. It's something that was, that was engineered in, in by people in many yes. ways. And therefore it can be, you know, undone. I started to say reverse engineer doesn't what that means, but, <laughs> but um, so um, can you say just a little bit more about that? Yeah. So when I got that, that last line wasn't uh, in, in my near final draft of the manuscript, actually. And uh, when my editor made it all the way through the book, and I think it was a second or third read, uh, all the big problems had been taken care of, or most of them, he came to me and said, you know, this book is really depressing. <laughs> and um, can you give your readers something? Can you not leave them in this place? And so I thought, okay. And I took a look and I, I thought, and after a day or so, I responded to him and I said, I've got nothing. I mean, I honestly, as historian tracking this history, I find it very heavy because it is, these values are so deeply embedded. This understanding of the relationship between Christianity and power, this, this white patriarchy, this militancy, this is, this is, this is, uh, no, it, it's not, it's not an encouraging story. I don't think I can, um, in all honesty. And he said, okay, I respect that. And then a couple of days later, I got another email like, Kristen, can you just give us something? Give us something. And, <laughs> and that's when I gave him that last line. And I cringed as I sent it off to him and I, because I felt like it was just too feeble. Um, but in fact, I think it's, it's, it is true. It is true. Uh, that is the power of history. Pre precisely what you said. None of this was inevitable. And if we can understand, and yet evangelicals in particular, I think we all, we all tend to think that, you know, our own values or whatever we've come to as truth is it's, you know, God ordained or it's natural or it's the truest truth, right? We, we all have the tendency, but maybe evangelicals a little more than others that, you know, all this is God ordained, God ordained gender roles, God, you know, Christian America, all of this stuff. Um, but if we can see that it wasn't always this way, that Christian masculinity in this country looked different, that conservative Protestants used to have different views on militarism, on the idea of Christian America, um, that these issues hadn't always come together in the way they did in, in more recent decades. And then we can see how and why and who was making these choices and often, and for what motivations. Um, it, frequently, it, it was to enhance their own power. Yeah. Uh, once we can understand that, it doesn't tell us what we should do, but it helps us to ask that question in much more productive ways. Is this where we want to be? Is this how Christianity should shape our, our own nation? Uh, is this faithful Christianity? And it allows us to ask those questions in fresh ways. Um, and, and so I, I do think that what was once done can be undone. And, and that, that sentence has been, I think, very powerful to readers who, mm -hmm. who the next question is, yes, and what can I do? Uh, to help undo this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, as you know, this is a podcast about writing for writers. And so, you know, I, I think the way I, I would say what, what happens, you know, what, what writers can do is just tell the truer story. You know? Yes. Yeah. Um, tell, telling the truth um, as uh, and some of the responses to this book were, um, 
a little, you know, it, it's, uh, it's been called a, a, an urgent and sharp elbowed book. And I think that's an apt description uh, uh-huh. for some folks within evangelicalism. They raise questions of, was this really the best tone to use? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is sharp elbowed. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm open to that. I, that was the question I had as I was writing it. This is the way the words came out. Uh, and this is the way that I thought I could tell the most powerful truth. Um, not uh, giving deference where no deference was due, because I think that's something within evangelical communities, there is so much deference given to authority mm-hmm. uh, and to particular authorities. And, and I didn't want to participate in that. And I wanted to make that very clear. And so, um, I mean, that was also a kind of writerly choice that I made. And I think in part, that's why it's been so um, popular within evangelical circles, because the books that they write for each other um, tend to be softer, gentler books. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to show deference uh, towards those who hold power. And I think they tend to blunt the truth in many cases. And I think that's where this book uh, cuts through in a way that others perhaps haven't. Good. I think it's so important that we draw a distinction between the status quo and reality. Yeah. And that that we are accountable to reality. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, I, and, and by the way, you know, we're probably going to disagree about what reality is. And we can, you know, we, we can enter a conversation about that. And I'm, and I'm not hundred percent sure you and I agree about what all the, you know, about what reality mm-hmm. is and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, the, the fact, I mean, I, I think a, a mutual commitment to reality um, makes it possible for us to, you know, where we disagree to, to be allies to one another and say, yeah. If we both care about reality, it's not that big of a deal if it turns out you're right or I'm I'm right, or if neither one of us is right. Yeah. And yeah. So have a little humility and throw that in the mix. And um, I think too, the, you know, this book is a work of history. It's not a work of theology. It's not a you know trying to woo evangelicals to change mm-hmm. their minds. The, the bulk of the book really is it's a history. It's mm-hmm. filled with quotes. It's filled with uh, people that they would recognize. It's filled with the books that are on their bookshelves. And, and so it's really showing them that reality and then co- and setting that in a context of a broader reality. And I think that that's another way that this book can cut through. Uh, a lot of it is, is pretty undeniable, right? You, you've got the footnotes. You can, you can track the evidence and you can see, oh, yeah. Yeah, that that is what Billy Graham said. That's right. Yeah. I didn't realize that because that's not the stories they tell themselves frequently. Um, and 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 you know they they have their heroes and they have their stories and um, and many um, for many there are just so many revelations here uh, that that there are other truths that had not been part of the stories they were telling themselves. Yeah, great. All right, Kristen. I always end with this question. Every episode ends with the question: Who are the writers who make you want to write? Okay. Um, I'm a fan of Tim Tyson. Uh, so he's the author of um, a book on Emmett Till, also Blood Den Sign My Name. And he just has this amazing way of weaving uh, history with narrative, uh-huh. personal reflection, and underneath it all, just a real kind of moral uh, uh, impulse. And, mm-hmm. and so I think he, he has elevated that to an art form. So I admire his writing. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of, as a historian, I really like Jamar Tisby's writing. Uh-huh. Uh, and he's just very clear and, and ends up just kind of with authority and grace, just getting right to the heart of things, including yeah. all the facts in, in just a really tight narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
<laughs> I have a lot, uh, but I'll I'll limit it to three. Um, I'm I'm also a fan of Kate Bowler's work, uh, both her her history and her memoir. Uh, to have to bring a little bit of her personality, you know, she brings a lot of her personality to her writing. Um, very clear, but also with a, a little sense of humor, a little irony, uh-huh. um, a little bite here and there. And so, so she's she's another writer that I admire. Although she doesn't make me. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, one of the, the question you gave me to think of ahead of time was, uh, you know, who makes you want to write more? Uh, she's the kind of person when I read her, I'm like, you know, I think I'll just, I'll just uh, hang up my my hat and, you know, sure. just you know, let her write all the books. Uh, yeah. So some 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 writers are, you know, inspired. Then some writers are just like, yeah, you just go, you should just write all the books. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, the good news is nobody can write all the books. Exactly. So. All right, Kristen Jame, thank you so much for for being here. Thank you. It was it was a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com/donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.